reacting to the world's best science. The Naked Scientist Newsflash. This is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith, Helen Scales and Dominic Ford. Helen, what have you got for us in the world of science news this week? This week we've got some good and some bad news for bluefin tuna. Some new research has pinpointed their favourite breeding spots in the Gulf of Mexico. It's good news because it means that these imperiled fish can have conservation efforts directly targeted in the right places. The problem is that they are also overlapping with areas where the recent Deepwater Horizon oil spill is happening, so really putting these fish in even more trouble. Now, using a combination of data on where tuna are caught by fisheries and studies that have tagged and tracked individual tunas, Steve Teo from the University of California, Davis, and Barbara Block from Stanford University, both in the States, have built a computer model that accurately predicted where bluefins are likely to spawn based on oceanographic data gathered by satellites and weather buoys. Now, their study, which was published in the journal PLOS One this week, showed that bluefins have a very strong preference for spawning in two particular hotspots of the Gulf. They, they even liken this to spawning salmon that, that come back up to their natal rivers. It seems they really come back to very similar areas and they seem to be hunting out circular swirling water masses called cyclonic eddies. And these are cooler and more nutrient rich than warmer currents around the rest of the Gulf. Now, in contrast, the more common yellowfin tuna spawn all the way across the Gulf of Mexico, and they seem to be much more tolerant than bluefins to a wider range of environmental conditions, including temperature. So this kind of explains a few things, doesn't it? Why bluefin, because they're so fussy, are more threatened. But how can we use this sort of information to inform survival and also conservation strategies? Right, well, I'd have to say that the threat to the bluefins comes down to the fact that they're extraordinarily sought after for sushi. Um, one was sold this year in Japan for, can you believe it, 170,000 US dollars, um, about 16 million yen. So these are very, very sought after, and that's why. But one of the reasons, in fact, um, in the Gulf of Mexico, they haven't been caught um, for the last 20 years deliberately. There's been a ban on bluefin tuna fishing, but they are still caught in fisheries that target yellowfin tuna, these other fish that have different, um, different habits and spawn in different areas. So the key to why this new study is very important is because it can show us where the yellowfin tuna fleets can carry on catching fish, but hopefully without catching the bluefins. Because, in fact, it comes down to the practicalities even of telling the fishing boats, OK, if you can see that you're in an area where you've got conditions that mean you're likely to find bluefin tuna and therefore you might catch them accidentally, don't put your fishing lines in there, go somewhere else and you still will catch yellowfins, probably, but hopefully you'll leave those bluefin tuna alone. Because the declines in the Gulf of Mexico are extraordinary. We're talking 80% decline in these species in the bluefin since the 1970s. But like I said, it is a bit unfortunate that what we found are these bluefin hotspots that, co that, that really coincide with where these oil spill has just happened. So that could really be another problem for these fish to deal with, and they've already got enough on their plates as it is. So when we buy tuna... In a tin, for example, that's yellowfin. That won't be the bluefin tuna. It certainly won't be bluefin tuna unless it's a very expensive can of tuna. No, it's yellowfin. There are other smaller species too called skipjack and things like that, um, which are much less threatened than bluefin. Now, you would know you're eating bluefin. You certainly would know from the cost of your dinner, I think. And you mentioned that they're threatened because of the oil problem as well. So that oil presumably is threatening to drift into these cyclonic eddies and concentrate their thereby disturbing the breeding ground for these bluefin. That's it, and we have no idea at the moment how sensitive their larvae are likely to be to these kind of chemicals. Um, we really have no idea. Let's hope it's not as bad as we might expect, but we're just going to have to wait and see. So tuna in oil then? 
Sorry, Helen. Well, also uh, something that caught my eye this week was a paper in Nature. It's by a guy at uh, Northwestern University, Carson Lamb. Uh, what they have done is to discover a whole new way that blood vessels have got for ridding themselves of obstructions, so-called microemboli. Now, what they've done is to use a very clever imaging technique called two-photon imaging, and this means you can see actually quite deep into brain tissue. And using mice, they infuse tiny little clots or emboli, obstructions, into the blood vessels and then track where they go and a small number of them, a few percent, lodge in small blood vessels, enabling the researchers to then say, well, how do those blood vessels deal with those obstructions? Now, something really amazing happened when they did this because... The conventional wisdom was that when a clot lodges in a blood vessel, there are various chemicals in the blood and cells that will slowly eat away at that clot and restore flow through the blood vessel. So Carson Lamb and his colleagues were really quite surprised when they did these imaging studies and found that after a couple of days, what had been a blockage inside a vessel, when they looked back, was now outside the vessel. And to find out what was going on, they took very high magnification studies through thin sections of brain tissue and blood vessels. And they found that wherever a blood clot was lodged in a vessel, the cells called endothelial cells that line the walls, the inner lining of blood vessels, those cells were sending out very thin extensions of their cytoplasm, the surface layer, the membrane of the cell, which was going round and investing, almost like a cloak, the obstruction inside the vessel. Once it was completely enclosed, the cell was then secreting something called a matrix metalloproteinase, an enzyme, which opened up a gap between it and the cell next door to it, making a hole, and the cells just effectively booted the obstruction out through the hole and into the what's called the extravascular space. They put it outside the blood vessel, and this enabled the flow to come back. Now, why this is so important is that, A, we'd never appreciated this can happen before, but, B, there are lots of disorders which are related to the death of nerve cells which occur because blood flow to the brain is insufficient. Nerve cells are very, very sensitive to low blood flow and so-called hypoxia. And what's interesting is that people who have diabetes and also people who get high blood pressure have thickened blood vessels in the brain because of those two disorders. They also are more prone to developing damage to nerve cells and dementias. So one intriguing possibility is that the reason their nerve cells break down and die more readily under those conditions is because they're less good at clearing out their blood vessels via this route. So now the scientists are going to go and have a look and see whether or not this is applying in this condition and it may also give us clues as to fresh ways to unblock blood vessels in future. So a very fruitful piece of research given how much of a problem stroke and other vascular injury sorts of things are. Dominic. Now astronomers studying enigmatic grooves on the surface of Mars have uncovered some secrets about the planet's historic climate. In a paper published in Nature this week, Isaac Smith and John Hort of the University of Texas Institute for Geophysics analysed new radar images of the grooves taken by the American Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter and European Mars Express spacecraft. And what they found is that beneath each of the grooves there are indentations in all the stratified layers of deposit beneath the surface down to a depth of almost 700 metres. Now that's quite a startling result because many people had thought that these were merely scratch-like features on the surface, carved out by erosion, extending down to only a few tens of metres. But we can now discard those theories because they have no, no way of explaining why the subsurface geology is affected as much as the surface itself. And a much better theory is that there's some finely balanced combination of wind erosion and wind deposition at work, which keeps these troughs remarkably stable and well-reserved, as new layers of material are being laid down. 
Because they're not small, them. are they, these troughs? They're I mean, they're, they're sort of Grand Canyon times 10 or something, aren't they? Huge. And they extend for 60 kilometres or so along the surface. They are huge features. And if it's right that these are um, being preserved as layers of deposit are being put down on top of them, then we can guess their age by knowing that about a millimetre of material per year is laid down on the Martian surface. And that means that they must be somewhere between half a million and two million years old. So that's tremendously old. Yes, these enigmatic greaves are very old indeed. And, and what's that going to tell us about what's going on, on on Mars? Well, it's fascinating because it's potentially telling us about Martian weather systems, not just today, but also hundreds of thousands of years ago. So Smith and Hort have looked at various possible wind-driven processes which could be responsible for the grooves. And they find that quite a complicated cocktail of wind erosion and particle transport is actually needed to keep these troughs in a steady equilibrium. And given the, the delicate balance between these processes which is required, the findings seem to preclude any recent climate change on Mars. Which is encouraging. Indeed, <laughs> At least yes. we understand what's going on to a certain extent, I suppose. Yes, well, also this week, a new fossil study reveals that the ancient ancestors of octopuses, squid and cuttlefish have in fact been swimming through our oceans for at least 30 million years longer than previously thought. Well, originally only a single fossil of a mysterious creature called Nectocaris terex was found in the famous Burgess Shale deposits in Canada. And for a really long time, researchers were completely stumped as to what kind of animal it was. Well, now writing in the journal Nature, Martin Smith from the University of Toronto in Canada leads a study that reveals a series of key characteristics that tie Nectocaris to the group of mollusks, including octopuses and squid, known as the cephalopods. Over 90 new specimens have been found of the tiny creatures that are between 2 and 4 centimetres in length. They had large stalked eyes and a pair of grasping tentacles, which the researchers think they probably used to hunt down prey and eat it. They were carnivores, that's quite important. And they also think that these creatures had a system of jet propulsion, which they used to push themselves through the water by forcing water through a nozzle-like funnel. And that's very similar to modern-day cephalopods today. Um, Nectocaris evolved around 500 million years ago, and importantly, that's not long after the so-called Cambrian explosion, when a plethora of complex multicellular life emerged over a very short amount of time, and that set the stage for the evolution of many of the animals we still see around today. Presumably, these would have been soft-bodied in the same way as an octopus is today, so that would explain why the fossils are so hard to come by, presumably. Absolutely, and that's why the Burgess shell is such an extraordinary collection of fossils, because there are lots of soft creatures that are very difficult to normally fossilise, but there have been just the right conditions set for them to be able to fossilise, and they've found a lot more of these little soft-bodied, tiny creatures. And in fact, we think we even know how these little nectocaris creatures died. Um, their gills are choked with fine deposits, telling us that they probably succumbed to an underwater mudslide, and that's what brought them to an end, as well as what's fossilised them. And, and left those remains to show us 500 million years later that, in fact, um, they were the ancestors of, uh, of octopuses and squids and so on. They didn't have a shell yet. That's very important. We thought previously that this group evolved from a group of other mollusks that did have shells. Probably they actually evolved those shells later on. We've got things like nautiluses and ammonites, which are now extinct. They have shells which they use actually to help them be, float around the oceans. We thought they started off with those, but actually it seems they probably they, they evolved later on. So it's really telling us quite a bit about those modern uh, cephalopods that are still around, how they evolved, and, and just 
what's been going on on that particular branch of the um, animal kingdom. Well, also in the news this week, uh, researchers in Seattle have discovered that, at least as far as gut bugs go, you have to be the right shape to be a success. We knew that size was important in some contexts. Shape now turns out to be equally so. The bacteria in question are Helicobacter pylori, and this bacteria lives in our digestive system, and it's also been linked to the formation of stomach ulcers and stomach cancer. Now, intriguingly, it has a very distinctive spiral shape, which scientists have thought was there to help the bacteria to survive and also move around in the gut. But new research has now shown that the spiral bacteria definitely do a lot better than if we straighten them out and make mutant forms that don't have that spiral shape. And so this suggests there might be a clue there as to new ways that we can fend off this infection. And joining us to explain how they've discovered this from the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Centre in Seattle is Dr Nina Salama. Hello, Nina. Hello. Welcome to The Naked Scientist. Tell us, if you would, first of all, what is H. pylori in a little bit more detail than I went into and how does it cause disease? Helicobacter pylori is a bacterium that lives in the stomach. And when it was discovered in the early 80s by Barry Marshall and Robin Warren from Australia, uh, their finding was, was pretty revolutionary because people thought that no bacteria lived in the stomach because of its high acidity. But these bacteria live in this very thick mucus that protects our stomach cells from the acid in the lumen, and uh, these scientists cultured them from patients with ulcers because, as you say, this bacterium is associated with development of ulcers. But it turns out that about half of the world carries this bacteria in their stomach. And what it does is it causes inflammation. Most people survive with this inflammation and aren't bothered by it, but some people will get ulcers, and, and then a smaller number of people can actually get gastric cancer. And Helicobacter pylori was the, is the only bug at this point listed as a carcinogen by the World Health Organization. So obviously finding ways to make it less likely that a person will become colonized and carry the bug would be very, very helpful because it means that then there'd be less prospect of at least some people developing those stomach pathologies that you mentioned. But tell us about the shape of the bacterium. Well, as you say, Helicobacter pylori, sort of evident in its name, is a helical rod-shaped bacteria. Thus, it looks kind of like a, a spiral. And what we wanted to ask was whether shape really was important for it to be able to colonize in its niche, the, the stomach mucosa. So what we did was look for mutant forms of the bacteria, bacteria where individual genes had been inactivated that now had lost normal shape. And interestingly, we found quite a number of different bacteria inactivated in different genes, indicating that the bacteria have a whole program to enact this shape. So the study that we just published analyzed four genes that seem to work together to make this normal helicobacter, helical shape by modifying the cell wall and, and basically taking this cage which wraps around the bacteria and gives it its shape by making little snips in that cage to make it more flexible so that it can turn into this helix and have the appropriate twist and curvature to make the, the helical shape. So the obvious thing to do is you've identified what those genes are, then you can go in and deactivate them. And what happens to bacteria if you switch off the genes that normally make them like a corkscrew shape? It's kind of interesting. If we grow them in the lab in, in broth, they 
are just fine. They grow normally, they swim normally, and they appear to be not more sensitive to stresses like acid or some of the the defense molecules that our bodies secrete to kill bacteria. They seem to be just fine. But if we take them now and try to infect them into the mouse stomach, because that is the model that we use since we don't do experiments on humans, now these strains with an abnormal shape cannot colonize the stomach. Do you know why? That is a really good question. We don't know exactly why. So the the previous idea in the field was that it might help with motility, the ability of the bacteria to swim out of the acid part of the stomach in the lumen down into this mucus layer and next to the cells. But what we found is that they appear to swim normally, both in regular broth and in conditions where we, we make a gel-like matrix to mimic the thick mucus gel that overlies our stomach. And we watch the bugs by live video microscopy. We basically can't find any differences in velocity. So now we're left to uh, try to figure this out. So the, the good news is that we have this animal model where we can see a difference in the way the bacteria colonize. And so now we're trying to go in and look where the bacteria go, how that differs from the normal spiral-shaped bacteria, and try to get to the bottom of it. And finally, Nina, presumably because you found that these genes, if they're not working, and you know how they work, which is helpful, they seriously disable the bug. This presumably means you can now start to look for potential drugs that could target those genes and the things that those genes make, because that might be a new way to treat or decolonize people who are carrying H. pylori. Yes. In fact, that was a very exciting thing about our findings, is that three of the four proteins, our work uncovered, appear to have a very specific biochemical activity in that they can cleave a peptide bond. And so, so having a, an enzyme, as it were, that's, that's functioning in your process makes a real possibility for screening for inhibitors of these enzymes that presumably then could render the bacteria unable to colonize. And another good thing is that these enzymes aren't found in human cells. So that's the other trick when you try to develop a, a drug against bacteria is you want something that's specific to the bacterium but it's not going to hurt our own cells. So you can make it highly selective. Nina, thank you very much. We have to leave it there. Uh, Dr. Nina Salama from the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Centre in Seattle. She's published that work this week in the journal Cell. Uh, we'll put details of that study, plus all of the other things we've been talking about so far on the show, on our website, nakedscientist.com, and it'll be in the news section. So that's nakedscientist.com forward slash news. The Naked Scientist Newsflash. Reacting to the world's best science. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.